Open up your Bibles to Genesis 3, verse 6 through 13. Last week we were talking in this passage as well. Today we want to continue that discussion, but I'm going to take it an entirely different direction. Matter of fact, let me just pray before we get going and as they're finishing handing out those brochures. If you don't get one by chance, they're on the table back there after the service, all right? Father, I pray right now for um, our time together, for our time in your word, and for your spirit among us. Let the words of my mouth be the words of your heart. Prevent me from saying anything apart from you, offensive to you, or wrong. Prepare our hearts for you speaking to us in this time. Equip me with your compassion and your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen. Genesis 3, verse 6. Then the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were I know some of you have been listening to me say this word. Naked. I still don't know if I said it. Have mercy. Lord, open up my tongue. Um, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. As you continue to read through the passage, you see that what's happened here is they find out that they are afraid and they hide. They find out that they begin to blame shift and they point fingers. As you read through the passage, you see that there's this, what begins here is a habit that trickles into this room and into your homes and into your heart. And that's a trait that has dogged mankind ever since we bit the fruit. And that is this thing of fear, of embarrassment, of vulnerability, of blame shifting. And in this case, this their sin began spiritual death and separation. You remember, there's a scene in The Wizard of Oz right here. They're going in at the end of the movie. Remember that? And he sounds pretty scary. I remember as a kid, I didn't even know if I wanted to watch this movie. And this is so tame compared to what we watch now. I can remember when this was scary. I hated those little flying monkeys. They were terrifying. Good grief. And they're nothing compared to what flies in our TVs and everything now. Anyway, you come in here, and what's happened is they're coming into this vast court, and there's the great wizard right there, and they're asking him to keep the promise that he's made that if you go out and you liquidate the witch, that was his joke, I just picked up on it, you know. Um, If you liquidate the witch, that come back to me, and they come back. And at this point right here in the movie, he he is scaling back on his promise. He says, come back tomorrow, and I'll think about it. And you know what happens next. Toto. It's always dogs and kids. They're the heroes in every movie. Toto wanders over and begins to pull back the curtain. And there is that ignore the man behind the curtain line. Last week, that's what we did. In Genesis 3, we went back and explored the man behind the curtain in Genesis 3. We went and found out who is the power behind that serpent? What is the story behind that serpent? Who is that? And we found out that it was Satan. We learned that he, this demonic power, began the tempting of Adam and Eve. And as the passage read, the outcome of that temptation has extended to you and I in this room today. The seed of that original sin began blooming and gave fruit in the very next chapter of Genesis because in the very next day, there they are, and that's someone's rendition of that. That's kind of scary in and of itself. You ever notice that in the Garden of Eden, 
Shrubs never went below, above the waistline. You ever notice that? It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so, the very next chapter, that fruit, that sin gave fruit to Cain killing Abel. And the evil and sinfulness of man reaches up to God in the following chapters. And the stench of it is so great that God cannot stand it. And his righteousness demands action. So he sets aside a tiny remnant of people and he does a reset on all of creation. But man's arrogance is not so easily quenched. And only a few chapters later, and I've begun thinking about this, we don't have a sense for timeline, we just chapters. And because it's only a couple of chapters, you think, oh man, that didn't take any time at all. But that's not true. We're not sure about that, right? So, but in a few chapters later, man has begun to build a tower. His arrogance says, let us build a tower up into the heavens. So amidst the sound of clay bricks coming together and forming a tower, you can hear ever so faintly the voice of mankind saying, I will be like God. I will raise myself to heavens. The very thing that got Satan kicked out of heaven was, I will be like him. I will be like him. So God sees their ambition, and just like he did with Satan, he snuffs out their efforts and separates them, different languages, different lands. Next in our story of Genesis, uh, we are introduced to the father, the ancestral father, to the seed that would one day bruise the serpent's head. We're introduced to Abram. And in so many ways, this dude rocks the house. I mean, he does that without question. But before he took his own son up for sacrifice, he began, he continued a trait that his forefathers had begun of lying, cheating. The rest of the story is full of this man's descendants. The rest of the story is full of liars and cheaters and murderers. They lie to their fathers, their husbands, their brothers, to kings. They sleep with their daughters-in-law. They sell a brother into slavery. And in the course of 50 chapters of Genesis, there are no less than 12 episodes of lying and cheating by this man's descendants. And it is this man's descendants that we have the promise of redemption. And God still is able to work in that sin. Throughout history, that sin has risen and fallen. The peaks of sin can be seen in the Dark Ages. It can be seen in the Inquisition. It can be seen in, in godless wars and genocides. It can be seen in the gas chambers of Nazi Germany. It can be seen in the mass graves of the Khmer Rouge, which is just what they've done there too, is to remember that is unthinkable. It can be seen in the images of ISIS that we currently see today in our news. It can be seen in Rwanda, in Uganda, in communist China and Russia. It can be seen this week where the total of people who've drowned and perished as they've tried to escape persecution and authoritarianism to number has, has gone over 4,200 who have drowned in the Mediterranean Sea trying to escape. And you see the sin peak in nearly 60 million aborted babies in our own nation. Sin has never been defeated. But at times, it has been abated. It has been slowed down. 
Those times when sin has been held at bay have been more often than not because of a government that has embraced some degree of morality, specifically biblical morality, and not because the king or the president or the premier was a devoted Christian. Perhaps that was the case, but not always. But often, righteousness had won the day because of a man or a woman who spoke out, that obeyed God, that lived boldly for biblical morality, who by doing so was pivotal in their realm of influence. You immediately can think of those names and those people. You can immediately look into Scripture and you can see Daniel and the impact he had. Where ultimately Nebuchadnezzar came out of his craziness and admitted the God of Daniel as being the true God. You see Ezra and Nehemiah being pivotal in bringing back the nation of Israel into Jerusalem. You see Esther saving the Jewish nation. All of them by boldly living out their faith and thereby have influenced history. And there are many others we could speak about. William Wilberforce is more of a recent example that gets attention in our day and time and his fight to end the slave trade in England. And church, I believe that we are in such a time as that right now. That we can live out our faith in a specific way right now, that will affect history. There are approximately 94 million evangelical voters in this United States. In the last election, 25 million of them chose not to vote. That election was lost by 5 million votes. Do the math. 25 million evangelicals did not vote. The election was lost by 5 million votes. When I speak of affecting righteousness and the tie and try to tie that into a political election, some might think be able to explain how jobs might be important, how climate change or foreign policy is morally right or wrong issue. And I'm sure that there is an argument can be made for those and should be made for those and can be made for those. But and, and should be and can be something that we could consider as we go in the voting booth. But today, I am not speaking about those matters. I'm speaking primarily, with the exception of one issue later on, I'm speaking about matters that are biblically moral matters. I'm speaking about the plight of the unborn, the value and the dignity of human life, religious liberty, and the right to live by our convictions without fear of repercussions. I'm speaking about the redefinition of marriage, about redefining gender. And I'm asking you to consider what God thinks about these issues and how your vote will represent thy will be done here on earth. See, you are placed here as his ambassador, are you not? You are placed here to go and speak his words. You're placed here to go and represent his agenda And an ambassador does not represent their own agenda. An ambassador does not come and say, you know what, I just need to talk to you, um, Queen Laura, about your agenda and your policy here. And I know what my president said. I don't really agree, so I think we can do this. I'm okay with this, me and you, making this deal on the side. That doesn't happen with an ambassador. Ambassador goes and takes the official party line of their government and represents it to a different government, regardless of what they think. You are that ambassador. You are that ambassador. 
And therefore, our personal feelings about a topic lie secondary to God's instruction and commandment on that topic. You know what? There is no way to overstate the difficulty of this election. This year, more than ever before, Americans are not talking about their voting choice because they are so politically... I'm sorry. Americans are not talking about their their voting choice because things are so politically charged. There's little room... Let me restate that. People aren't talking about voting because it is so politically charged. Because it is so emotionally charged. They're afraid of offending somebody. There are issues worth taking that chance for. There are issues worth taking that chance for. And the way that we have decided to act in our culture and in our society on these issues has little, left little room. You either have to be silent or else it is a barroom brawl. It seems that the issues of character flaws of our candidates at question have overshadowed the moral issues that are at stake. Consider this. One party platform embraces and will implement abortion on demand even so, and do so even until late term. There is no repulsion by that. They do not blush at that. They do not think twice at that. And therefore, that means that they would consider snipping the spine of a baby as being morally okay. Even ask for your tax dollars to pay for it. And we won't even go into the other forms of abortion and how it happens. Just in the past few weeks, another issue, just in the past few weeks, the state of Georgia demanded a pastor hand over the copies of his sermons. Just two weeks ago, I believe, a Dallas pastor was flagged in the TSA process at the airport. Everything in his carrying bag was searched. The only thing that they spent time looking at was his Bible. The TSA agent said that when we asked you what was in your bag, you said this and this and this and my cables, my laptop and my Bible. That's what got our attention. We wanted to search that. When did the Bible become an object of national security? When did the Bible become an object that was necessary to pull out and search before you got on an airplane? We also have resting in, we also have the issue of mixed marriage, marriage between two men, two women. That is now the law of the land. That means that it is no longer an issue of choice for most of us. That is still being defined exactly how we are supposed to respond to that. Because now it is a civil right. Meaning that if you discriminate in that way, you have broken the law. Right now, there are still religious exemptions on that at this moment. 
but they are chipping away at that. And that chipping away is happening in local municipalities who pass anti-discrimination ordinances that sound good and right. Newtown Borough has one. Doylestown has one. New Hope has one. Several other municipalities in our area have one. The theory and the strategy is it's been too difficult to get that done at the state level, therefore we will do it at the local level. And those anti-discrimination measures are the ones that will come in and eventually cause us to change the way we do church. An attempt to stand against those measures, those worldviews, will not be tolerated. Finally, it's, there's also the issue of who is in the bathroom with your wife and your children. Tolerance is not extended to those who disagree. You can ask the state of North Carolina as they face the rage of all those who are politically correct, and the NCAA and concerts and events are canceled because North Carolina is such a bigoted, narrow-minded, wrong state. Keep in mind, the issue of religious liberty was tested by the Hobby Lobby case. It won five to four. It won five to four. That case said this, I can run my business the way I want to run my business without the government stepping in and telling me what I can do and can't do, say and can't say, in regards to sexual orientation. Now, one of those justices is missing it is very likely the next justice will determine that issue all over again. We are considered bigots for our convictions regarding sexuality. Our morals are narrow and unevolved. Our moral character and the moral character of our culture and many of our political policies and platforms are not based on a moral absolute, Instead, their moral absolute is their own desires and their own high thinking and what feels good in that moment. Now then, I will say this. They accuse us as being bigots, and some of us fulfill that accusation. May it never be said so about us at Crossing. That we would act or speak in a way that disrespects, dishonors, and demeans others who don't feel the same way as we do, act the same way we do, believe the same way we do. We are commanded to love them at all costs. May that be what we're known for. What motivates this agenda is exactly what motivated Satan. I want to be accountable to no one. I want to think, say, and do, and believe what I want without having to answer to anyone for it. Francis Schaeffer, years ago, said, No totalitarian authority or authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. The Christians had the absolute in God's revelation. Because the Christians had an absolute universal standard by which to judge not only... I got this up there. Let me get that up there for you. I'm sorry. This is the thing. Because Christians had an absolute universal standard by which to judge not only personal morals but the state, they were counted as enemies of a totalitarian Rome and were thrown to the beasts. That was 2,000 years ago, and it has happened repeatedly since then. 
And I believe we are on the brink of it happening again today, not over there, but here. And we will join the ranks of our persecuted brethren. I began these comments today by highlighting the ebbs and flows of evil and righteousness. I don't think personally America will ever be what it once was. There's no turning back on such issues as gay rights and definition of marriage and gender. But I do believe that we can stem the flow, that we can slow it down. And what happened in the past eight years, especially the past four years, at one time were unthinkable. Unthinkable. Consider what America will look like if the direction and the speed of change continues unabated for four more years or eight more years even. What about the direction of our nation if that direction gets set on a course that goes out 30 more years? And this is the one place where I'll step away from moral absolutes and being able to vote toward those to this. The next president will fill that spot. And the way that our land is set up currently, those nine people define morality for our nation. Those nine people define what is right or wrong for you. And what they choose to do in the course of the next four to eight years will set the course for our nation for the next 30 or more years. And if you want to understand that a little bit better, think about this. The justices that were in place in 1972 set us on a course regarding the outcome of Roe v. Wade that has murdered over 60 million babies. Do not underestimate the weight and the importance of who sits on that bench and the direction they will put our nation on. Do not underestimate. Let me bring it home for you, even a little bit closer. Last year, in Philadelphia, 17,000 babies were aborted. That stadium holds 19,000 people on that night. Enough babies to fill the Wells Fargo Center one time, were aborted in one city last year. That is the influence of the Supreme Court. Consider the direction, the trajectory that a Supreme Court would put our nation on if there are no conservative voices on that bench. We will never vote us into utopia We will never vote us back into the Garden of Eden, but perhaps we can slow down the progress towards Sodom. As you consider your vote, consider not the candidate as much as you consider the moral legacy that candidate might have our nation on. We know exactly the direction of some candidates. And as Pastor Tommy Nelson said two weeks ago, We are voting in a situation that's causing us to vote. It's the fear of the known versus the fear of the unknown. We know the direction will go on in one case. We're not sure what to expect from the other. I didn't know who I was voting on until this week. I was torn by the moral failures of candidates 
and I was worried about voting for a third party that might be wasting a vote. But I made up my mind after listening to a sermon given to me this week. It was made about three weeks ago by Tommy Nelson of Denton Bible Church. He's a graduate of Dallas Seminary. Great speaker, great theologian, good church. Many of my thoughts and my comments today are inspired by his, and I believe it's the duty of a shepherd to challenge the thinking and the convictions of the flock on matters as important as this one. To help us in some small way consider how to think through these incredibly complicated issues with the Bible in mind. So this morning, I've stepped out in the thin ice to attempt to do that. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to hurt anyone. I am attempting to shed some biblical light on perhaps the most complex political issues to challenge our nation in a very long time. If you are offended or hurt, I am deeply sorry for that. Please consider the intent of my heart in this matter, and please consider these words and ask God what he thinks about them. I answer to him someday, which is far more fearful than answering to anyone on this planet. Someday I, have to, I hope to answer to him and say, I did my best. I did what I thought was right that morning. Let me close by asking you to consider your vote based on a few things. Let me ask you to consider your vote based on our families. Congratulations, you're a poster child now. (laughs) Currently, Kevin and Kristen can decide where their children will go to school. Currently, Kevin and Kristen can decide what they teach their children. They decide how they medicate their children. They decide all those choices about their children. But the waves are already beating on the shore to change those kind of things, given the direction of our nation now. There are people who already say that what we do downstairs in our church every morning is brainwashing and evil to teach children myths and fables and fill their mind with hate. Betty Jo, thank you for doing that with our children downstairs today. The vote we're having this week will affect that family and many more. The vote we're having this week will affect signs like that that are popping up everywhere. And the issue of bathroom is not the only issue. The other issue is that I can't speak in many, or I'm encouraged not to speak in many environments about him or her. That because I might offend someone, I should say some other word to describe them. Many universities have already gone that direction and there's a push for many public schools to follow that suit. This is still legal in most places without reprisal to gather on a school grounds and pray around a flagpole for our school and for our nation. That will be gone. This is still legal to be able to have our Bible, to be able to read it, to be able to take it places with us, to be able to openly say it influences me without repercussion. But that will be gone. It is still legal and comfortable for the most part for us to come together in this room and worship every single Sunday. That will also be pressured. They are already after our tax status, in Michigan or Wisconsin, 
it lost in the state Supreme Court, but they've gotten it that far. They will revisit it, and they'll revisit it, and they'll revisit it, and they'll revisit it until it passes. And then that, just like the marriage issues, will be a domino effect, and it'll sweep. And then finally, finally, I want you to sit and see this image. That child is safe today. Given the trajectory of our nation, he might not be for long. How we vote influences all these things. We know that God is just and that he might be putting a harsh ruler in place. But regardless of who is in the Oval Office, while there is still our civic duty to vote, while it is still our right to do so, knowing and believing that God puts rulers into power and that he turns the hearts of rulers to and fro, we will step in and we will place our hope in him. See, people say, well, if he's already sovereign, then what's the point of voting? Think about this. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever there was a battle to be fought, God never said, stay behind the walls and I'll go out and fight it before you. He said, go out and take the battlefield and I will fight it for you. When the Israelites had to go out and take the field, they put their skin in the game. They said, you know what? I will come out here and I will face you, my enemy, nose to nose, believing that my God will show up and fight this battle for me. But if they weren't willing to go out there and face the enemy nose to nose, he wasn't so interested in finding that battle for them. We have to go out and step in the booth and exercise our civil duty and right and then ask him to do what he wants and then to entrust him with that and then to support what happens thereafter to the best of our ability. Francis Schaeffer over 40 years ago said, there is a day and a time coming when civil disobedience will be the the way of the church. I don't know. We are called to pray, we are called to support, we are called to obey. Whatever happens on Tuesday, that's where we will go as a church. God is always good. He has placed us here as his ambassadors. Let us vote as his ambassador this week on those issues that are near and dear to his heart. Being in this world but not of it, only passing through as pilgrims, our hope is in Jesus. But we've been placed here for such time as this. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you, and in many ways, there's nothing wrong with saying that we are getting what we deserve, that the men and the women and the candidates that are in place are there because our culture and our nation has placed us in a place and time where these are the people that get the attention and the approval and the energy of our nation. Father, um, we come before you and humbly admit our sins and our failures 
as individuals, as churches, and as a nation and ask that you would have mercy on us one more time and that you would stem the flow of the direction that our nation is going in. We look to you. Even though we might go and vote, we might vote in a way that we feel like is the very best way to vote in a morally right way that is in line with biblical convictions. We look to you, but we still acknowledge that you are supreme, that you are sovereign, and that you are fully in control. We look to you and ask that you would intervene. Work in our hearts and our minds. Help us today to not approach this with fear, but with an absolute certainty of your sovereignty, no matter the results and the outcome. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.